It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high-seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 71. The Providence of God. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my Patreon House of Lords, who help keep the podcast going, and who have been joined by the Earl of Hereford, Jim Hopkins, and Baron Slars. There's also been some elevations. Daryl Parker is now the Marquess of Buckingham. Thank you to all three of you. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. We left off last week with Pride's Purge when Colonel Thomas Pride cordoned off the Houses of Parliament and expelled or arrested any MP who was hostile to the army or in favour of a treaty with King Charles. This left the so-called Rump Parliament. Many of the top officers in the army, not to mention the rank-and-file soldiers, were determined to bring the king to trial. Events will move very quickly from here on, and less than two months after the army seizes power in Pride's purge, Charles I will be dead. Christopher Hill, like the proper Marxist historian that he was, made the very interesting point that in these events, it was men of lower social stations that were driving things along. When Robert Hammond, Cromwell's cousin and the King's jailer, was replaced on the 21st of November, he was replaced by one Colonel Ewer, who had been a servant before the war. Colonel Thomas Harrison, who will soon move the King to Windsor Castle, was the son of a butcher. Colonel Pride had worked in a brewery. Colonel Oakey had been a candlemaker. Colonel John Hewson was a shoemaker. Colonel Goff was a salter. Colonel Barkstead made thimbles. These men will all help the army take control of the country, bring the king to trial, and some of them would sit as judges and sign his death warrant. They were far from what you could call the traditional rulers of England, and far below the social rank of even relatively minor gentry like Cromwell and Hammond. Speaking of Cromwell, where was Cromwell? Because throughout all of last episode, as well as all through these events, Oliver Cromwell has been conspicuously absent. Well, not anymore. Because on the same day that Pride purged Parliament, Cromwell came calling to the capital. The question, asked then and now, 
was why he had stayed away. Granted, he did have responsibilities that kept him in the north of England. As we saw, he'd entered Scotland to give the Kirk party the push it needed to get the engagers out of power. He then stopped by Berwick and Carlisle to ensure they were back in English hands. And then, of course, Pontefract was still under royalist control, and that just wouldn't do. But all in all, it meant that Cromwell was out of the spotlight for a long time. A suspiciously long time. Some historians, as well as many contemporaries, believe that Cromwell knew that events were hurtling towards a decision that he either didn't want to make, or that he wasn't sure he knew his answer to. But that didn't mean he was out of the loop. He was kept informed, and he kept regular communication with Sir Thomas Fairfax, his son-in-law Henry Ireton, the leveller John Lilburn, and his cousin Robert Hammond. In fact, Lilburn travelled north and visited Cromwell in September, and they'd keep in touch. Cromwell gave his implicit support to the Leveller's large petition, and much of his regiment was particularly keen on the ideas within it. But on the question of the king, he seems to have been torn. Writing to Hammond, he agreed with him that a settlement with Charles would be nice, but only if they believed he could be trusted, and only if it appeared to be God's will. And on both points, Cromwell was unconvinced. On the 20th of November, he wrote to Fairfax to endorse the army remonstrance, telling his commander that he doubted anything good could come from, quote, this man against whom the Lord hath witnessed, end quote. Cromwell also backed northern parliamentary gentry in their petition calling for justice against the king. John Morrill and Philip Baker agree that Cromwell wanted the king to face trial, and after his guilt was confirmed, as it surely must be, then he would be forced to abdicate or be forcibly deposed, not executed. At this point, and this is still a very hotly debated subject, it seems like Cromwell wasn't committed to the king actually being executed. Not because of any love for the man Charles Stuart, Cromwell probably thought that the king did deserve to die for his actions, but because it would open up so many old and new wounds. There were safer ways to render the king harmless, by either stripping the monarchy of any real power, stripping the monarchy of Charles Stuart, or both, that this attitude would change. When Cromwell arrived back in London on the evening of Pride's Purge, he stated that he, quote, had not been acquainted with this design, yet since it was done, he was glad of it, end quote. That's another question hotly debated by historians. How much did Cromwell know about the Purge? Because it's hard to see why Ireton would not have kept him in the loop. Our knowledge of Cromwell's views in this period is frustratingly limited, because so few of his letters and papers around this time survive. The stage was now set for the king to be put on trial. But, let's be clear, there was a lot of opposition to putting the king on trial, whether or not his life was in danger, and this includes from those on the army council. For starters, it's hard to understate the cultural taboo against harming an anointed king. He was chosen by God, after all. And the scripture was very clear that monarchs should not be harmed. And if there's one thing the officers of the New Model Army took very seriously, it was the Bible. There were also practical considerations, because the army wasn't blind to the fact that many people in London and across the kingdom supported a negotiated settlement with Charles. Pride's Purge had removed anyone who favoured compromise with the king from the commons, but it hadn't touched the lords. And the House of Lords was very much against both the purge and any idea of putting the king on trial. If the sovereign was not sacrosanct, where would that leave them? 
The Presbyterian ministers in London also railed against the army, the purge, and any suggestion that the king could be put on trial. They had an easy angle of attack, in that many of the officers of the new model army had sworn to the Solemn League and Covenant, which included an oath to protect the king's person and position. This was an oath to God, and to go against it could only lead to dire consequences. Now, so far, these opponents aren't too surprising for the army. The general population, who just wanted peace and who had not borne the brunt of Charles's duplicity like they had. The House of Lords, who were a reactionary anchor. The Presbyterian ministers had been broadly in support of the Newport Treaty. It provided for a Presbyterian religious settlement, and most of their allies in the Commons were now under arrest or had been expelled. Their preference for half measures was well known. But what is interesting and surprising, at least to me, is that the levellers also opposed putting the king on trial. For Lilburn and his friends, it was a question of legitimacy and of precedence. In the current circumstances, if the army acted on its own authority, never mind the rump of the parliament, it would only lead to the army ruling the kingdom. If there was one thing the levellers really weren't in favour of, it was government by the sword. There was a general suspicion of the army from the levellers, who were getting more and more concerned about the army's tendency to resort to force to get their way. The march on London and the purge of Parliament was just the latest. Plus, there were lingering doubts about the fate of Rainsborough, the martyr of the leveller cause. Had counter-revolutionaries among the grandees conspired to see him dead? That said, the levellers were in favour of the king facing justice but it had to be done by a government which represented the people. The agreement of the people had to be implemented first. Only a new constitutional order could put the king on trial. The army, running roughshod over the civilian government, was not at all what they wanted. Speaking of the army running roughshod, on the 8th of December, Fairfax sent more troops into the city of London, with orders to seize the parliamentary treasury and distribute the full amount of outstanding wages still due to his men. Remember when that was all that the army wanted? To be paid? This is why you make sure to pay the men with guns. Anyway, to make sure that this uh, redistribution of wealth went off without any problems, the soldiers brought along the big guns. Literally, several pieces of artillery were wheeled into place, aimed at key positions. On the same day, soldiers quartered in St. Paul's Cathedral built bonfires to keep themselves warm in the winter weather, and they carved up the pews and furniture throughout the cathedral, piling it into the centre before setting it all alight. If you know the history of London, you might recall that the current St. Paul's Cathedral was rebuilt after it burnt down in a fire. Somehow it wasn't this one. The Great Fire of London, which will claim it, was still a decade and a half away. By the 11th of December, a new agreement of the people was drafted after discussions between Ireton and his fellow officers, and John Lilburn and other leading levellers. This was the Committee of Sixteen I mentioned last week, which was made up of equal parts army officers, levellers, civilian independents, and sympathetic MPs. They'd been working on this since mid-November, although their meetings were probably postponed while the army officers were otherwise occupied orchestrating a coup but by the 11th, they were ready. Gentles sums up the feeling on the committee, quote, All the participants seemed to share the conviction that they were taking part in deliberations of the greatest historical importance. 
They believed that providence had handed them an unrepeatable opportunity to shape the political and spiritual destiny of their country. End quote. The new agreement said the following. For starters, it worked on the assumption that both the monarchy and the House of Lords were either abolished or non-entities easily ignored. The present Parliament, what was left of it, would be dissolved before April 1649, and future Parliaments would be elected on new constituencies, which better represented the spread of population. The right to vote would be vastly expanded, though not to the extent of universal male suffrage. Male householders were to get the vote, if they signed the agreement. Royalists, servants, wage labourers and the very poor were to be denied it. Parliament would be elected biennially, so every two years, and when Parliament was not in session, a Council of State would govern. This executive was appointed by and responsible to Parliament. Central to the new agreement was its definition of rights. Military conscription was to be forbidden. There would be an amnesty for actions taken during the Civil War. There was to be equality before the law, disregarding social status or rank. Extrajudicial punishments, as in those not described in statute law, were abolished. There would be guaranteed freedom of commerce, trial by jury, a maximum interest rate of 6% a year, and the abolition of all excise taxes, tithes, imprisonment for outstanding debt, and this was big, capital punishment was abolished for all crimes except murder. Serious compromise can be found in the agreement's point on religious toleration. It confirmed that Parliament had no right to enforce religious practice, and there would be religious freedom for all, but with the very notable exceptions of Anglicans and Catholics. This enshrined independency into the Constitution, and added protections against the return of popery and what Puritans feared was popery. To prevent a counter-revolution, to stop royalists from simply voting their way back into power and restoring the monarchy, anyone who had supported the king was denied a vote for seven years, even if they otherwise met the requirements. Anyone who opposed this new constitution was to be permanently denied the vote. This agreement of the people was then presented to the wider army council, and from here the renewed alliance between the levellers and the army began to break down. The army council took the agreement, thanked the committee, and considered it a first draft to be debated and amended. Lilburn believed that they had presented not a rough first draft, but a fully-fledged constitution, and he was deeply offended and angered that the army once again appeared to be running roughshod over the desires of civilians. The levellers walked out, and on the 15th, Lilburn would publish, anonymously, his version of the agreement, Foundations of Freedom, or an Agreement of the People, and claimed that this was the version which the Committee of Sixteen had agreed, a claim which historian Francis Henderson believes was accurate. The Army Council will continue tinkering with the agreement into the new year, and once again a conflict was brewing between levellers both in the army and on the streets and the grandees. On the 12th of December, Parliament reconvened, and a further nine MPs were blocked from entering the Commons by waiting soldiers. Many of the MPs arrested the previous week were now released, though they were still prevented from returning to Parliament. Between 30 and 40 were still imprisoned in St James's Palace, and four were charged with treason for inviting the engager invasion. These were William the Conqueror Waller, Edward Massey, Lionel Capley, and Sir John Clotworthy. 
The following day, Parliament annulled the Treaty of Newport and reinstated the vote of no addresses, which the peace faction had successfully repealed earlier in the year. Now the weak peace of Newport was dead, and no one could negotiate with the king to make another one. The immediate crisis had passed. MPs looked around the house, and noticed there was a bit of an echo. With all the purges and the general unwillingness for moderate MPs to stick around, the House of Commons was dangerously close to being unable to reach its quorum of 40. If a bad cold took out a few MPs, Parliament would effectively be unable to govern. So with the safeguard of the vote of no addresses restored, many of those who had been arrested or excluded in the purge were permitted to return, and invited to take their seats. Meanwhile, the army was getting ready for its day in court. Cromwell made a visit to Windsor Castle, where he met with his old battlefield opponent, the Duke of Hamilton. Hamilton had been brought here after surrendering in August, and now Cromwell arrived to have a little chat. His objective was to secure from Hamilton a confession. Not of Hamilton's own crimes, he'd marched an army into England. There was no doubt that he'd waged war against the kingdom. No, Cromwell wanted the names of his conspirators, his allies, the men within England, who had encouraged Hamilton and the engagers to invade. Of course, at the top of that list of suspects was Charles. There was no way that Hamilton had invaded England to restore the king without that king giving his agreement. Rather like with Hamilton's guilt, Charles's was clear as day, but if Hamilton could be turned, it would make the rest of this unprecedented process so much easier. But, for all his faults, Hamilton refused to betray his monarch. Cromwell left empty-handed. Hamilton was soon to gain a neighbour, because the next day, the 15th of December, the Council of the Army ordered that the king be transported from Hurst Castle to their headquarters at Windsor. In preparation for this most important prisoner, all other prisoners held in the tower cells were transferred elsewhere, except Hamilton. Charles's convoy set off immediately. He would be in Windsor Castle in just over a week. On the 17th of December, the Army Council warned London Presbyterian ministers to stop preaching against the army and its purge of Parliament. Cromwell and Ireton visited many of these ministers personally to threaten them, and they ordered several more regiments into the city. The London Common Council, which had just a few months earlier petitioned Parliament to come to terms with the King, now attempted to curry favour with the soldiers. They presented a gift of 100 barrels of beer, and two cartloads of bread, cheese and butter. Ian Gentles notes that this did not impress the officers, who still viewed the council with hostility. As much as I imagine the rank and file were happy accepting the peace offering, the army council was not. On the 21st, the elections for the council were rigged to specifically exclude royalists, Presbyterians, and anyone who had signed a petition calling for the king to be brought to London. Unsurprisingly, this led to a council which was dominated by councillors who firmly backed the army. The new model army was ascendant. Soldiers were on every street corner, they guarded a House of Commons which was dominated by their allies, and the London Common Council was now theirs too. Power was concentrated firmly in their hands. What were they going to do with it? Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. After the King's party left Hurst Castle, they reached Winchester on the 19th of December, and on the 23rd, he was safely ensconced in Windsor Castle. Along the way, the army had been disgusted to find that the king was cheered and welcomed by those they passed, and they weren't shy at showing that disgust. At Winchester, the mayor and local notables lined up and welcomed Charles to their city, only for the parliamentarian officers to warn them that they just violated the vote of no addresses and could therefore be charged with treason. The officials quickly backed away and left the soldiers with their royal prisoner. When the king reached Windsor Town, the townspeople rioted in his support, and the army violently suppressed them. There would be none of that. But the army was well aware that they were acting against very strong public feeling. The same day, the army published additional pamphlets, labelling the king as the, quote, capital and grand offender and author of our troubles, end quote. He was guilty, quote, of all the trouble, loss, hazard, and expense of the blood and mischiefs that have happened by the late wars in this kingdom, end quote. Their intention was, of course, to turn public opinion against the king, to make their position clear, that Charles Stuart had to be held responsible for his actions, regardless if he was an anointed king, and that he had to be put on trial. The rump backed the army now, and appointed a committee to consider, quote, how to proceed in a way of justice against the king and other capital offenders, end quote. What that justice would look like was still far from decided. On Christmas Day, the army council was visited by an honoured guest, a prophetess, one Elizabeth Poole. As anyone who remembers our interview with Dr. Louise Yeoman will know, there was a place in early modern Protestantism for divine prophets, and this was one of the few ways in which women were capable of preaching. Well, Elizabeth Poole was brought to Windsor to tell the council of her visions. She'd been invited by officers who hoped to avoid regicide, and now she warned the officers against killing the king. She urged them to limit their punishment to deposition, to force the king from the throne, but not take his head. The council remained divided. The fate of the king was not just a question of breaking a taboo, although it was certainly that. There were practical considerations too. If the king was removed, however that might happen, what would happen then? Would Prince Charles be invited back to England to take the throne? He was currently fighting Parliament, and he'd commissioned Prince Rupert of the Rhine, long time no see, as an admiral, and Rupert had spent most of the winter raiding parliamentary shipping. It was hard to imagine the rump or the army coming to an agreement with the king's eldest son, especially if they were to chop off his dad's head. But Charles had other surviving sons, Prince James and Prince Henry. What about them? Well, James had been in parliamentary custody until April 1648, when he successfully escaped and was smuggled out of the kingdom. But Prince Henry, Charles's youngest surviving son, was only eight years old, and still held by parliament. He was young enough to be suitably malleable, 
He could be raised without the interference of his Catholic mother, and he'd be the perfect figurehead for a powerless constitutional monarchy. But that would mean bypassing his two older brothers, so there'd always be a problem of legitimacy. That raised another question. Did they need a king at all? What if God's judgment had not fallen on the person of the monarch, but on the monarchy itself? On the 26th of December, Cromwell spoke in the Rump Commons, and he made sure to be ambiguously threatening, quote, If any man whatsoever had carried on this design of deposing the king and disinheriting his posterity, or if any man had yet such a design, he should be the greatest traitor and rebel in the world. But since the providence of God hath cast this upon us, I cannot but submit to providence, though I am not yet provided to give you my advice. End quote. The following day, the majesty which surrounded the king started to be stripped away. All court ceremonies and honours which still accompanied Charles's day-to-day life were banned. Visitors were no longer to kneel to him, and his staff of servants were cut to the bone. One of these men had been recommended to the king by the Earl of Denby, and as he said his goodbyes, Charles asked him to tell his former master that he wished he had taken his advice. That advice had been to accept the Newcastle propositions back in 1646. The day after, the 28th of December, was the first reading of the ordinance to establish a special court to put the king on trial. The ordinance explicitly refers to the need for a trial in order to spare England from foreign invasions based on his invitation to the Scottish engagers. On the 29th, the second reading passed just as easily. On the 1st of January 1649, the ordinance passed its third reading, and so it went up to the House of Lords for their approval. The next day, the rump received an answer from the Lords. No. The peers rejected the ordinance to put the king on trial. It was an outrage, and they would not give their approval to it. Then they adjourned for a week. If the House of Lords didn't meet, parliamentary business would grind to a halt. The peers misjudged the situation. Two days later, another unprecedented constitutional act took place, in a time of many unprecedented constitutional acts. On the 4th of January 1649, the House of Commons declared that it had the right to pass laws without the agreement of the Upper House or royal assent. They were the representatives of the people. And so two days later, it did just that. For the first time in English history, the House of Commons passed an act, not merely an ordinance, but an act upon its own sole authority. An act of the Commons of England assembled in Parliament for erecting a High Court of Justice for the trying and judging of Charles Stuart, King of England. From here on, the Commons, or at least the Rump, will assume its own sovereignty. The Upper House will be sidelined, and the King... Well, we'll talk about that next week. Patrons of the rank of Earl or higher also have a bonus episode covering a strange house of cards, which had been built up over generations of historical writing. The so-called Denby Mission, long seen as the final attempt by Oliver Cromwell and the army to come to terms with the king and avoid a trial. It was a secret olive branch that was rejected out of hand by the stubborn and arrogant Charles, and so he set himself on the path to the executioner's block. As this bonus episode covers, 
I call it a house of cards because, despite generations of historians taking its existence for granted, it was pointed out not too long ago that there's basically no evidence for it. It's an interesting example of how we can still learn more about even the most well-known events. Thank you to my House of Lords, including Mike Sanders, the King's favourite, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, Brent Sitz, Marquess of Queensbury, and Eli Cohen, Earl of Dartmouth. You can join their ranks and receive ad-free episodes by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.